Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is high. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. Watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at-bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field. It's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at-bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Come on, side, 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 Hey y'all, what's happening? It's me, Ed Lover. Welcome to another podcast edition of uh, Come On Son. Want to welcome everybody out there. You know it's always overseen by Combat Jack the man who got me into podcasting in the, face, in the first place. Um, today's podcast is a little, I don't know if you want to call it off-centered uh, uh, from what I'm usually doing. Um, I've dealt into some serious issues before. Like we talked about rape culture here on the podcast, but um, today I'm doing a podcast uh, it's called Trafficked. And there's a new show coming on AMC Actually, I believe it comes on very, very soon. And I have one of the uh, journalists, I have the journalist who is um, starring in this new documentary series on AMC about trafficking. And her name is Mariana Van Zeller. And she will be joining me in a little while because trafficking is, is, is not just one thing. Like, when you think of trafficking, what do you think of? The first thing you think of is human trafficking, right? Or drug trafficking. But there's a lot of different kind of trafficking going on. There's, there's scamming, that's trafficking. There's money, counterfeit money, trafficking counterfeit money. That's another form of trafficking. You could celebrate, you could uh, separate, not celebrate, but separate the drugs into different kinds of trafficking. Lately, fentanyl has been one of the biggest drugs that's been trafficked out there. Of course, there's human trafficking, there's pimping, that's still part of human trafficking. There's slavery trafficking, body parts trafficking. It's a lot of trafficking going on throughout the world and we're gonna dive into it. We're gonna see how she got on the front lines to give us all this information on trafficking, um, how much her life is at risk doing this um, is she afraid to do this? Or, or, are the people that she's interviewing aware that they could be exposing themselves to danger? How much danger is involved with going behind the scenes and bring it to the forefront? All of this trafficking that's going on. Is America complicit in some of the trafficking? A lot of us say, yeah, a lot of us will look back to um, the role Freeway Rick Ross played in drug trafficking and the person who was supplying him and who he was getting it from. So all of those drugs that ended up in South Central did not just come through like 
phew, let's just, let's get these drugs through. There was a reason that this stuff was happening. And part of the reason was drug trafficking. I mean, a part of the reason was the United States. The United States was letting this stuff get through. There's, there's no secret about that. But the people that let this stuff get through are never the people that are apprehended, arrested, and convicted on these charges. There's no way that somebody somewhere is not taking a payoff for this stuff to get through, whether it's human trafficking, whether it's trafficking fentanyl, whether it's counterfeit money, whether it's scams. There's no way. You can't, listen, you can't go out of the country and bring back more than $10,000 in cash without declaring it. Yet it's done every single day. If I'm coming through the airport with $2.5 million, maybe I started off with $3 million after the $500,000 payoffs, that money is coming back into the United States. Somebody, some gate agent somewhere, somehow is going to know, hey, this is what's going on. Somebody that's scanning the bags is going to know, don't scan this particular bag. This might contain cocaine. But somebody at customs is going to know, don't check these crates. Somebody at the, at the waterfront is getting paid off for the stuff to get into this country. There's no if, ands, or about it. So Mariana Vanzella is going to be here with me today on this podcast, and we're going to discuss this stuff and how this stuff happens and why does it continuously happen? Because you lock one person up, somebody else takes their place. Cocaine didn't stop, and, and methamphetamines didn't stop, and weed didn't stop, and fentanyl didn't stop after El Chapo got locked up. It, it, it didn't, the cocaine didn't stop after uh, Pablo Escobar got locked up. The cocaine didn't stop after your local big-time drug dealer that you know from wherever you grew up at from your neighborhood got locked up. It's a continuous motion. It's just one person takes the place of another person, and it goes on and on and on. So is the war on drugs really a war on drugs? Is the war on human trafficking really a war on human trafficking? I live in Atlanta now. This is a place where there's more human trafficking going on than probably any place else in the United States, because one of the biggest airports in the United States. So listen, man, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Maybe Mariana Vanzella could give us some insight into why this continues to happen. The reason why it continues to happen, first and foremost, is greed. This is a greedy, 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 greedy society that we live in. And we all know it and we all accept it. It's just the way it is. It's just the way things are done. It starts at the top. Our sitting president still has not conceded the election. What does that show you? That is greed. It is not just a greed of money, it's a greed of power. Power makes money. Money sometimes don't make you powerful, but being powerful can make you some money. Absolutely believe that because people get into different things. As long as somebody feels like they can become invisible at the top of it, keep their hands clean at the top of it, and don't have to worry about it, they're going to try it. And they're going to try to make some money off of it. I mean, the first episode was about fentanyl. I'm interested in what this fentanyl is. I had never heard of fentanyl. When I was coming up, it was, what were they doing when I was coming up? Weed was always around. But the junkies weren't crackheads. They were dope, what we call dope fiends. Dope fiends mean heroin. 
mostly. You find somebody tripping off, you know, Sherm, Angel Dust. That was the stay away from that Angel Dust thing. I saw um, my next door neighbor when I was a kid. His name was Patrick Washington. He was one of my best friends. We grew up right next door to each other, probably like not even, I would say, four or five months difference in our ages, maybe even a year. But I watched Patrick smoke some Angel Dust and he was never right in his mind again. Let's take the case of uh, Lynn Bias. You can go and Google Lynn Bias if you're too young to remember who Lynn Bias was. Highly regarded and highly touted basketball player coming out of Maryland, was supposed to go to the Boston Celtics. Everybody was like, Lynn Bias on the Boston Celtics is another championship for the Boston Celtics. He was that good. They claim he snorted cocaine one time in his life and his heart exploded in his chest because he was in such great condition that his body couldn't stand the foreign substance that was put into it. Let's take somebody like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson died because basically you don't want to say it to yourself, but Michael Jackson was a dope fiend. He was addicted to propofol. Uh, hey, it, it is what it is, y'all. Michael Jackson was addicted to propofol, and, and that's the reason why he died. And before that, he was addicted to painkillers. Prince, who had hip surgery, was addicted to painkillers containing fentanyl. He overdosed on fentanyl. That's why Prince died. This, this is real stuff here, y'all. This, this is not, you know, stuff that I'm making up as I go along. Drugs and alcohol, you know, a lot of people grew up with parents that abused alcohol. Thank God mine didn't. But I did have friends that abused drugs. I, one of the guys who uh, taught me how to uh, DJ early in my life, a, another guy by the name of Keith Sadler. Keith Sadler was addicted to heroin, and his addiction is what got him murdered. Because he was not only addicted, but he was dealing. Can't play with the house money. Y'all know the rules of the street. He ended up getting murdered, putting in the trunk of his car and left in the parking lot of JFK Airport in New York. Drugs has all kinds of effects on a lot of people, and a lot of us have family members that were alcohol addicted, drug addicted, some kind of addiction. It happens all the time. Some people are lucky enough to go behind the scenes and see what's going on with this addiction and how it's affecting the world, and especially America. And we are lucky enough today to be able to speak to one of them. And it's, the show is called Trafficked, and we're going to be talking to Mariana Vanzella very soon, right here on Come On, Son, the podcast. Um, why don't y'all hang out for a minute, all right? That's coming up. Hey, it's Ed Lover back on Come On, Son, the podcast. Just a friendly reminder before y'all do anything. My world famous Kabod Sun rant is coming up. But without further ado, let's talk to Mariana Vanzella. Welcome up to the show. Hello. I can't, I'm not, I'm not hearing you. How are you? There you are. I'm here. There you go. Hello. Welcome. Welcome, Ms. Mariana Vanzella. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm very good. I'm doing great. 
Tonight's well, the premiere, so yes. I'm a little nervous, but good. <laughs> Are you nervous? Well, my name is Ed Lover, and I thank you so much for, for uh, joining me on this oh. journey. I've been watching uh, AMC all day today. Um, I saw the commercials for it, and it looks absolutely riveting, um, insightful, enticing. Every adverb that I could think of using for this show um, I mean, it looks tremendous. And uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, how, what was your journey like to become an investigative journalist? Absolutely. You know, I grew up in Portugal. Um, and when I was 12 years old, I used to watch the nightly news with my family every night, sitting down in our living room. And it was a very important part, ritual in our family. And I used to watch these Portuguese anchors on television essentially talk about the whole world. They had all this knowledge about what was happening around them. Uh, all around the world. And I was just, uh, I wanted to have that knowledge. Of course, I had no idea they were reading from a teleprompter, but I decided exactly then that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and uh, so when I graduated from school in Portugal, I started applying for Columbia's Grad School of Journalism because it's one of the best uh, journalism programs out there. And I knew I wanted to do journalism here in the US. So I applied the first year, I didn't get in. I applied the second year, I was put on a wait list, but I still didn't get in. And the third year I flew to New York from Portugal and I knocked on the Dean's door and I told him who I was and what I was doing there. And uh, we, he sat me down for an hour. We had a very long conversation and uh, that year I was accepted and it was sort of the happiest day of my life. It also taught me my first important lesson in journalism, which is persistence, uh, don't give up. Um, and then the interesting thing that happened and sort of changed my career path entirely was that I arrived in New York for Columbia University uh, just a month before 9-11. So I was the only Portuguese journalist in Manhattan when 9-11 happened. And I was a young 24 years old without any experience doing any live reporting or anything like that. And uh, I got a call from my TV station that I'd worked for in Portugal and they said, you know, go down to Midtown, go to the top of this roof uh, of this building, you'll be reporting live um, about the events, you know, the biggest events in our lifetime. And I did, I was incredibly nervous, I was shaking, but I did my job. I then walked down to the streets and I started seeing the first signs of people looking for their loved ones. And uh, I broke down and I realized that moment that the kind of journalism that I wanted to do was sort of long form where I would get uh, a chance to um, sort of uh, show uh, the complexities of the world we live in. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'd have more time to really uh, understand um, how things and acts as horrible as that one had happened. And so a year later, I actually moved to the Middle East. There, there are certain things in life, moments in life that I would say you remember exactly where you were when those things happened. I remember exactly where I was when 9-11 when occurred. Where were you when, it, when the, the first plane hit the tower? I was in my tiny little studio apartment uh, close to Columbia University. I was actually asleep because I'd been working very hard the, the night before on these assignments for Columbia. And my, I had two phones. I had my landline and my cell phone and they both started buzzing. And I kept on pressing, come on, let me sleep. And then suddenly I, I picked up one phone and it was the TV station calling me and telling me, turn on your TV, this is happening and we need you to go midtown. And on the other line was my mom who was crying hysterically and begging me not to leave the house. And I was telling her mom, but I have to because I'm, this is my job and this is a, you know, a, a opportunity of a lifetime. This is the reason I want to become a journalist. And, and uh, it was tough and she was crying and put my brother and my sister on the line and everybody was crying and begging me to stay at home. 
but I couldn't, and I, I'm happy I didn't because it had a, a, a huge impact on, on my life, certainly. And, um, you know, I was sort of in one of the hardest days of, of my life and so many people's lives. Um, I think in a way uh, it was a privilege to take front seat and see, um, you know, heroes, literally heroes all around me in New York that day. Were you already broadcasting when the second plane hit the uh, tower? No, I was still at home watching TV. Okay. It was exactly when I turned on. No, actually, I turned on the TV after the second plane or right after the second plane hit the tower. Um, and that's when they started calling because that's when they realized that there was a terrorist attack and this, something, something very big was happening. Because as I remember, when the first plane hit the first tower, they thought it was an accident. All the journalists that I was watching on television thought it was an accident. It wasn't yeah. until the second plane hit the second tower that people realized that this had been a terrorist attack. How was the travel from, because Columbia University is downtown Manhattan, am I correct? I if I remember yeah. correctly, I'm a native New Yorker, I should know that. Yeah, absolutely. It is, you know, I, it was, it's uptown, uh, but we, I actually only had to go to Midtown. Um, okay. And did all the reporting was all these live satellite feeds and it was journalists gathered from all around the world. So we, I didn't go to ground zero. My husband, however, who is now my husband and was, uh, a student at Columbia as well at the time. Uh, we didn't even know each other then, but that day he spent the day reporting on Round Zero. He got, he was able to be one of the last ones to get in. I still don't know how he got in. He wow. and, and he was there for almost forty-eight hours um, wow. with uh, with first responders. And he's from Long Island. He grew up on Long Island, so he actually knew a lot of the people that were there that day. Which was yeah, I had a, uh, unfortunately, I had a friend or two that perished in the World Trade Center attacks, and that's a day that. There's oh. always something about that day that makes you feel funny. It's a, it's a day that you will never forget. And I, I wish that the United States of America would honor that day with a day of remembrance. I don't, I don't want to call it a holiday because it will never be a holiday. And you don't want to see Macy's having 9-11 sales. You know what I mean? So you don't want that. I think a day of remembrance would be a proper thing to do to just let everybody stop what they're doing and remember all the people that lost their lives and all the first responders and the police and EMS workers and firefighters. There's a lot of people after 9-11 that lost their lives because they responded to 9-11. Now let's talk about traffic because that is a very interesting concept. Where did this concept come from and, and how did you get involved with it? You know, I've been covering black markets around the world uh, for over 15 years. Um, and uh, one thing that I started realizing was that, you know, there is so much out there, so much information about the formal economy. You know, there's magazines, there's TV stations, there's entire organizations devoted to analyzing and studying every sort of up and down, uh, every IPO, everything that happens in the formal economy. And yet we know so very little about the informal economy, these black and gray markets. Uh, the drug trade alone, for example, brings in uh, Three, over $300 billion a year. That's more than Walmarts that employs, you know, millions wow. of people here and around the world. So, um, so that was the whole idea behind the show. I, wa I wanted to do a show where we could really explore and go deep into these, you know, gray and black markets and try to understand how they work, um, how the power structures operate and who are the, these black market operators, who are the traffickers and who are the smugglers and what can we learn from these worlds and these people? I see from the trailer, you really get deep into this, like, you're on the front lines of this. How did you get access to it? Like tonight's episode, this first episode is about fentanyl, right? 
Yeah, one is fentanyl. We actually have a double premiere. One okay. is fentanyl and the one is about scammers, which we filmed okay. in Jamaica and uh, Israel, which is fascinating stuff. How did you get access to these people and get them to talk on camera about it? It's the hardest part of my job, Ed, for sure. Uh, my job and my team's job, a lot of it falls on them too. Um, I mean, especially on them. I'm, I'm so lucky to work with an incredible group of people. But, you know, I'd say that for every yes we get, uh, there's dozens and dozens of no's. There's a lot of making phone calls, going after people, chasing people, and trying to build that trust that is necessary in order to gain access to these worlds. Um, but I'd say also it's a lot about the approach and the way you approach people. If you treat people with, with respect um, and with empathy, um, uh, and if you trust them, they will trust you back and will treat you equally. Um, and so the way that I approach everyone, and I'm always very clear about my mission there, it's not to judge. I am here to listen to your story. And I am, I'm, I'm, you know, and I want to share with people, uh, you know, what, what it is you do and why is it, why it is more importantly, why it is uh, that you do this. And more often than not, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of bad people and I've spent a lot of time with a lot of bad people out there and there's people doing very bad things. Um, but more often than not, I found that the reason why people enter these worlds um, is because of the, you know, the hard, um, hard that they've been dealt in life. It's lack of opportunities. It's the circumstances. And I think that it's easier for us to paint the world as black and white and think of the others as bad people. And it's happening. You see it all around us now more than ever, this idea of demonizing the other side, uh, not just here in America, but all around. And so I really hope that the message that we get from watching this show is one of, uh, of, of, the, of people that we think have nothing in common with us um, actually do. And there's a lot more that connects us than doesn't. It's a, it's a humanizing aspect of it all that I'm hoping will come across. As you said just a little while ago, this is a double premiere, so we're dealing with scammers and fentanyl. When did fentanyl become the rage? Because I was just thinking back about growing up, and I never remember hearing anything about fentanyl. No. It was mostly weed, heroin, cocaine. That's mostly yeah. what you heard about. It's so interesting. You know what? I've been covering the opiate epidemic for since 2008. One of my first documentaries that I did was called The Oxycontin Express, and it was about when Oxycontin suddenly became sort of the most popular drug in America and was killing. In, in Florida alone, where we centered our reporting with the pain management clinics at the time, uh, seven to nine people were dying every day from overdose uh, on Oxycontins that they were getting from pain clinics. Um, and then we, I followed up that reporting with a uh, documentary I did on heroin abuse. And then it, back in 2014, 15, uh, around there, I, this was before Prince, who was sort of the first big name to die from a fentanyl overdose. I started hearing from my sources, like there's this new drug out on the streets, it's called fentanyl. Uh, and it's really bad. And so I remember calling my editor at the time I was working at another channel and telling him, this is going to be big. I can tell this is, you know, I'm hearing from my sources and him saying fentanyl. I've never heard of this drug. Do we really want to do a whole documentary about this? But I was persistent. I stuck to it and we ended up doing that. And uh, a couple of months after our, our story was released was when Prince died. And it's interesting too, that the parallels between Oxycontin and fentanyl, I don't think most people know, but it started as a ph pharmaceutical drug as well, made by American pharmaceutical companies and pushed on by people, um, mm. sometimes in, in sort of illegal manners um, by, by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and we are seeing the devastation and what that meant. What is it about fentanyl that are, are attracting addicts to it? 
it's the power that it has. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin. Um, you know, one thing that you find when you're reporting and talking to users is that whenever there's a batch of drugs that uh, people are overdosing from, that's the drugs that if you're a hardcore user, that's what you want because it, they know that it's the powerful stuff that you will get you a really big high. And they don't really care at that point sort of the danger involved. So partly it's that, it's how powerful it is. It's actually what users go, get after, go after, which is very sad and, and depressing. But, um, and then on the other hand, the reason why it's being made mostly in Mexico and China is it's because it's super easy to make fentanyl. It's, uh, it's I mean, it's not easy, but it's a, it's a synthetic drug. So they don't, you don't have to wait on, you know, seasons like you do with heroin and marijuana and weed, for example, or cocaine. On water, you don't depend on land, you can make it in a lab. Um, in this case, for our film, we filmed two labs where they were making, um, you know, fentanyl. So it's not that difficult uh, to make and it's cheap. Um, and you can, you know, count on a steady supply of it. What and there's the an enormous- What's the difference in the prices between fentanyl and heroin? Um, it's not so much that the prices are very, uh, fentanyl, I don't, it's che definitely cheaper than heroin. And that is why they're mixing actually a lot of other drugs with fentanyl. Now you're seeing cocaine being spiked with heroin. You're seeing not only heroin, it, you, I mean, with fentanyl, it used to be that it was just heroin at the beginning that was being spiked with fentanyl. Um, so I filmed actually uh, a, a mother who lost, uh, had three sons and lost two sons to fentanyl overdoses. This was for a previous documentary I did. Mm -hmm. Two of her sons died to fentanyl, to uh, opiate overdoses. And the second one, the last one that died was because he thought he was doing, uh, using heroin. And in, in fact, it was spiked with fentanyl and he didn't know. But now the troubling thing is that uh, Mexican cartels are spiking other drugs with fentanyl as well because it's a quick high and it's cheap. And you can become quickly addicted to it. Yes, very or, quickly. Or addicted to it. So it could really, they're spiking other drugs with fentanyl could be the gateway to you doing something a lot heavier if you're not. Absolutely. The crazy, crazy thing is that the, the amount of only two little grains of salt, that amount of uh, fentanyl can kill you. Wow. That's how powerful it is. Um, so this is not only incredibly dangerous for the users themselves, but also for the first responders, for example. You know, I've spent a lot of time on, in the front lines with the first responders, with uh, firefighters and law enforcement around the U.S. who are, you know, risking their lives in a lot of these cases when they're responding to these overdose situations. And it's, uh, I don't think people realize just how powerful this drug is. It is the most dangerous drug in America, hands down. And you're dealing with scammers on this double premiere tonight. So you, yeah. you, you traveled to Jamaica. How did, how did you get access to this? I've been in Jamaica plenty of times. Did you go to Kingston? Were you in Kingston? We were in Montego Bay, actually, okay. mostly. We did one trip to Kingston, but it was- in Montego Bay. What kind of scamming are they doing? You know, right behind those beautiful resorts, there's <laughs> an underworld, an underbelly that futurists get, get access to. Uh, it's what you call the lottery scams. You know, we've, I've been, a, I haven't been a victim because I haven't fallen into it yet, but I have certainly received those calls that you get saying, you know, your electricity bill is overdue and we're going to shut off your electricity. One of my good friends here in Los Angeles recently actually fell for it and paid hundreds of dollars to somebody who's called saying that they were Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and tricking them. So this happens to a lot of people. And it's, uh, or they'll tell you, it's really fascinating stuff. They'll tell you, um, 
excuse me, ma'am, they have perfect accents. They're, uh, you know, very colorful talkers, Jamaicans are. They're mm -hmm. some of the most fun people uh, to spend time with, for sure. And they will call you and they'll say, excuse me, ma'am, you've won uh, the lottery. You've, uh, did you shop at Walmart recently? And you'll say yes, or, you know, wherever, the Whole Foods or whatever your grocery store is. And at one point, you're, one, they are going to hit something that you've been to. And, they, and you say yes. Well, it turns out that you just won the lottery. Or you won a Mercedes Benz. Get this one. This one was a really fascinating one. You won a Mercedes Benz. And uh, in order to actually get access to that Mercedes Benz, we will drive the car to you, but you have to pay taxes. So the Mercedes is worth $150,000. And all you have to do is pay $5,000 in taxes and transportation fees. And the Mercedes will get to your house. And you're like, you don't believe it. And then they call you in again the next day. And then they send you, they mail you an envelope with a little Mercedes key for a car, for a Mercedes car. They go to that, to that, to that length of sending you a car key. And, and then you start believing, um, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe, and they start saying, okay, ma'am, maybe you just start by paying just, you know, $500 or a thousand dollars. And slowly they start reeling you in. And so I went to Jamaica um, to meet the people behind that, that, those phone calls. Right. So if you could get a hundred people, 200 people to give you $500 a piece, it's a pretty good amount of money. Oh, absolutely. And some of them end up giving thousands and thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, it's really sad. And then, you know, we heard stories of victims here, of uh, Americans actually committing suicide because they've given all their money to scammers. Wow. It's really That's sad. Horrible. That's very sad. I actually had a scammer call my mom. My mom is 81 years old and told my mom that they were from the Internal Revenue Service. And that she owed back taxes and how to pay the taxes is like a green dot card or something. And my mother was like, that doesn't sound right. And I said, mom, give me the number that they called from. And I called them back and I said, oh, I just want to pay my mom's taxes because I don't want to get her in trouble. Why don't you come to the house and I write you a check? And as soon as they said <laughs> that, click, it was over, it was over with. As soon as I said, come on, I'm going to give you the address to where I am. <laughs> I should have brought you with me to Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> How much you want this money? Because when you come to my house, you're going to get a really <laughs> surprise. Were the people that gave you access to it, were they worried about you maybe being a federal agent, a DEA yes. agent? What did you that have is, to go through to prove to these people that you were legit? For sure. That is always the biggest sort of fear on their side. Um, that's always sort of the obstacle to us getting access is there has to be there's a lot of pre-meetings. There's what I call the underworld first dates, where <laughs> you know sometimes it's my whole team, sometimes they want to meet everyone on the team, sometimes it's just me, and they just want to meet in a public space. You know, there's always rules: don't bring any audio equipment or filming or cameras or anything, and it's just a meeting, a first meeting, so that they can sort of get a sense of who I am and and see if they can trust me and if I'm really a journalist that I say I am, because usually they always think that we're we're law enforcement. But once that trust is built, uh, and once there's uh, all these uh, drinks to be had, because that's something that always happens in these first dates, is that they order a lot of alcohol, and there's even drinking games sometimes. But it's sort of, again, to get to know you and to see if they can trust us. Do they um, want to a wire or not? Do, they, do you have to go through all of that stuff? No, there have been some situations where you're sort of patted down, um, okay. but, but that's rare. Um, you also you know, you don't, you don't, you don't want to be, you don't want to be stupid to the point that you're messing around and telling people that you're not going to be filming them and then showing up to, so let's say the Sinaloa cartel with undercover cameras. That's what, that we, we, 
we don't do that. We, right. especially dealing with, you know, these criminal organizations, you have to be very clear about what your goal is. And we're also very clear about um, uh, protecting their identities. We go to great lengths about protecting their identities and, and making, distorting their voices even because we know that there's a risk okay. involved. Um, so we, we, you know, if by any chance, you know, we tell them that we won't show their faces, we'll hide their identities and locations. Um, and I think that's an enticing proposition, proposition for them to talk to us because, you know, some, partly because of ego, these people have worked in these worlds for a very long time. They're some of the best sort of, you know, counterfeiters and smugglers and, you know, illegal drug chemists in the world. And uh, they don't have anyone to boast to. Uh, their families a lot of times don't even know what they do. And so we give them opportunity to disguise their identity and to talk about something that they feel they're very good at. And also, on the other hand, super interesting to me that I found is that there's people who want to share their stories because they know that the world portrays them as the bad people. And they want to tell us uh, that they are not and how they got into this world. Um, and, you know, for them, it's important to be able to, to share their story. Mm. I, I see that. I was going to ask you because you, you already described that you changed their voices and their locations. I was going to ask you, isn't that dangerous for them to be recognized by somebody else, maybe in their cartel and they're talking to an investigative reporter? I could put the whole operation in danger. For sure, but nothing happens without the boss's permission, usually. Okay. Uh, even when we're dealing with cartel operatives, usually the boss, uh, they don't do anything. There's an enormous amount of fear there, so nothing happens without the boss's permission. And on the cartel side, I would say that a lot of times it's mostly it's a lot of times just uh, the ego involved. You know, there's a lot of rivalry between cartels in Mexico. And uh, when certain factions, even of certain cartels have certain factions inside and being given the opportunity to talk about the amount of guns they have, the power they have, uh, the amount of drugs that they're, you know, uh, able to smuggle into the United States and, and the amount of money they make from that, um, again, is I think a, lo a lot of the reason of why they agree to talk to us. A lot of bragging and boasting going on. Huh? That happens as well. Mm -hmm. I see that you, you cover, you're covering with this documentary series a lot of different types of trafficking. I wanted to ask you, and I think my audience would be interested to know, how complicit in this trafficking is the United States? Because there's no way this stuff is going down without someone in the United States giving a green light. It's a good question, for sure. Uh, one of the episodes we did uh, was about fentanyl trafficking. We spoke about that today. And I essentially followed the pipeline of this drug um, from the coast of Mexico, where it comes from cargo ships. The precursor chemicals arrive in cargo ships from China, mostly. And we saw the barrels of these precursor ch chemicals being thrown out to sea. And then we saw cartel operatives picking it up moving it to a stash house and then moving it later on to a lab where they cooked and made fentanyl. And then we saw the packing and the transportation and entering the United States. And it was when we were spending time with the mule, with the person that actually uh, smuggles the drugs to the US, who in this case actually happened to be a woman, um, mm. and a pregnant woman nonetheless. And it was while spending time with her, uh, the whole time we spent time with her the day before she was going to cross the border. And she was very uh, calm and knowing full well, she had kids at home as well, that she was about to do something that I was nervous for her practically. And she was very calm. And then we actually were able to film her as she crosses the border with her car loaded with fentanyl. 
and she got called into secondary inspection. And for me, that was a really hard time. I had a really hard time as a journalist because I, you know, I tend to sort of build and create connections with these people. Um, and they've just opened up their lives to us. So it's impossible not to. Um, but on the other hand, so I, you know, on one hand, didn't want her to get caught. But on the other hand, of course, I didn't want the drugs to come across to the United States because I've seen firsthand the impact that these drugs have. So it was very hard for me on that hand. But what was mo most incredible was that once we actually crossed, she was let go. And I got to meet up with her when she was already in the U.S. And I asked her, when you, I mean, what happened? Weren't you nervous? And she said, no, I'm not nervous because I know that the guy that was at the border, the border patrol agent, the guys there that day, uh, or the guy there that day that saw her and inspected her, that he's paid for, he's paid by my boss. Of course, there is no way uh, that I can verify this and that we could verify this. But it has been reported that there is corruption, uh, you know, amongst uh, law enforcement, in particular yeah, border patrol. That's, that's, that's too much money. And that is something that I have heard more what than they make What they actually earn from the government for doing that. And somebody's going to offer you 10 grand to turn the other way, 10 grand cash. 100, 100 grand, 100 grand, 500. Let a truck through. And, and the cartels are pretty smart, too, because from what I understand, Sometimes they will send a small truck with a few mm -hmm. kilos in there, tip them off and let them get that one. And on the other side, there's an 18-wheeler coming through with 150 kilos coming through. And they know it and they got paid for it. And they'll make them look good by doing this bus. And this guy who's driving knows not to run his mouth and all the rest of the stuff gets through. So they'll take a loss on one side for the bigger load to get through on the other side. That's very that is what I've heard during many years of reporting on, on drugs in general, um, again and again. I've heard it more than once. Um, but it has been impossible for me to verify it, but it right. has been reported before. I don't think that's, that's news to anyone. Yeah, that's a very scary position to be in. How, how, do you, who's watching your back? <laughs> uh, well, we, you know, I think it's sometimes what we don't show is the amount of sort of planning okay. um, and security meetings that go in, you know, before we even hit the ground. Um, okay. No, no story is worth a life. That's for sure. Um, and I take, you know, a, you know, a lot of, it, it falls a lot of my shoulder as well, because this has been a series that I've wanted to do all my life. And I've sort of gathered this incredible group and team that are now, my family. Um, so I, I don't take security lightly at all. I'm quite sure your family is worried about you every time you go deep into this jungle of the underworld. And you should see my husband. You know, he's a journalist <laughs> as well. And we started reporting together in these worlds and traveling around the country. And just to give you a sense of what our relationship is like, one time I was uh, also doing another fentanyl story back in the day a few, a few years ago. And I was being given access to this lab, fentanyl lab. And they told me that the only way I could get, get access is if I, it was, had to be in the middle of the night and they had to put me, blindfold me and not show me where we were going. And I called my husband who wasn't there at the time. And I said, hey, so this is the deal. And they're saying they, they, saying they, they want to blindfold me in the middle of the night. And uh, what do you think I should do? And he says, make sure the cameraman films you being blindfolded. <laughs> 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 That's about as safe as you could get, huh? <laughs> so he's a storyteller at heart, yes, a filmmaker. A storyteller. Mariana Vanzella, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. We will be watching Traffic all episodes, and the best of luck to you. And keep bringing us those stories that hit us in the heart that we can really, really attach ourselves to. We thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Ed. It was a pleasure being here. All mine. Make sure y'all check it out, man. The first episode is tonight on AMC. It's called Traffic, and we will all be watching. The world will be watching. God bless you. Safe travels and all the best to you. Can I correct one thing real quick? Sure. National Geographic, not AMC. National Geographic. I will make sure I say that so many damn times. It's National <laughs> Geographic, not AMC. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. You're very welcome. Thank Thanks, Ed. Thank you bye so bye. much. So it's actually the National Geographic channel, y'all. And I made, I think I said AMC probably like 30 times. I didn't mean to give AMC all of that plug. It's on National Geographic. It's called Traffic. You have to watch it. Wow. I mean, what an incredible story. This lady is going through everything that she can, man. Those investigative journalists are, what would we do without them? Like, how would we get all this the deep in the dark end stories, like the, from the real, from the front lines, from, from, they don't get appreciated enough. We appreciate our anchors so much that sit in the studio reading a teleprompter, telling us the stories. We don't appreciate our investigative journalists that go to the front line in order to deliver the story. It's on that, Geo. We will definitely be watching. I'm getting another message from uh, her producer. So I just had to send her back because she's, you know, sending me a little text through a, uh... oh. Well, she's out of the meeting now. It is Nat Geo, y'all. That's what it is. Y'all make sure you watch on the National Geographic channel. It's called Traffic. Uh, Mariana Vanzella, I thank you so much once again. Nat Geo, y'all. Nat Geo, okay? Make sure that you watch it on Nat Geo. The first episode is on fentanyl. It's a double premiere, fentanyl and scamming. I can't wait to see it. I hope all y'all are going to watch it. Support Mariana Vanzella. She didn't have to come on this podcast and do this with me, but she was nice enough to take the time out of her evening or day to do this. And I really appreciate it. Make sure you check it out on that. Geo, I will be right back with my come on satin for the week. What up, y'all? I'm back again to said lover, and it's time for come on. So these are the things that really got me. Matter of fact, hold on one minute. Don't even don't 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 move. I'll be right back. All right, the people that got the audio only on this, you're not going to be able to see this, okay? So I got to hurry up because I'm running out of time. So come on, son, y'all. First of all, I want to say come on, son, to whoever the young lady was that jumped into the clubhouse room when Kevin Hart was in there, and the subject was, is Kevin Hart is, fu is funny, and called us all dick riders, and then got upset with me because I got upset that she called me a dick rider. Come on, son. Fuck out of here. I don't care if you're a woman or a man. You're never going to call me a dick rider and get away with it. I'm not having it, okay? And speaking of things that I'm not having, this fucking new Drake candle. Drake has a candle coming out that smells like Drake. Come on, son. Why the fuck do I want to smell like Drake? Why do I want to smell like myself or some cologne? I don't want to smell Drake in my house. And all you hype beasts that's run out there buying this candle for $80? Come on, son. Fuck out of here with that bullshit. Why the fuck would you want to buy a damn candle that smells like Drake? First of all, most of y'all never met Drake, and you don't even know if the scent that they're giving you is really fucking Drake. Come on, son. My producer's going to buy that dumb shit, so she gets a, come on, son, too. Second one, I want to say, well, this is the third one. 
Come on, son, the Oreo cookies from putting out a fucking candle that smells like Oreo cookies. I like Oreo cookies, especially the golden Oreos, but I'd be goddamn if I want my house to smell like a golden Oreo cookie. Come on, son. Fuck out of here with that bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's all smoking weirdness. Now, once again, I have to, come on, son, President Trump and, come on, son, Rudy Giuliani. Stop it. You fucking lost, dude. For real. Your, your, your attorney general just said that they didn't find no inconsistencies or voter fraud anywhere. Why are you doing that? Come on, son. Fuck out of here with that bullshit. You know there's no voter fraud concede and let's get Biden going on to what he needs to be doing. And come on, son, to whoever's spreading this picture of Kamala Harris with her family talking about we fell for the first black woman vice president shit. It don't matter who she married or who she loved or what kind of children she had, bro. That woman is just as much a minority as you, me, my mama, your mama, and my grandmother, okay? Somebody in my family dealt with somebody white. That's why I got this light-ass skin. So come on, son. Fuck out of here with that bullshit, man. Stop trying to bring the woman down when she was just in office. And a big come on, son, goes to former President Barack Obama for saying that he made a mistake but not giving Dolly Parton the Medal of Freedom while he was in office because he thought she already had one. Bruh, it's your job to check and see if people got their shit. Come on, son. I did a lot for hip-hop. Where the fuck is my Medal of Freedom, Barack Obama? Come on, son, for all of that shit. You done sold damn near a million books in the first week that book came out. Are you worried about whether or not you gave Dolly Parton a Medal of Freedom? Come on, son. I love you, Barack, but come on, son. You gave one to Ellen and didn't give one to Dolly Parton? Come on, son. Dolly Parton, nine to five? Come on, son. You know that song, son. And Dolly Parton does a lot for her charities, too. And she ain't mean to people like fucking Ellen is. So you should take Ellen's medal back and give that shit to Dolly Parton. Come on, son. My name is Ed Lover, and this is Come On, Son, and I approve this message. Now get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. I'm out. Y'all keep God first. Everything else will fall into place. I'll talk at you, with you, to you, and about you next week right up here on Come On, Son, the podcast. Be easy, breezy. You got a long way to slide. This episode of Come On, Son, the podcast is being brought to you by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. No, I'm only playing. <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> nah. Y'all keep going first. Everything else will fall into place. We'll talk at y'all next week, man. Y'all know what it is. Come on, son. This episode of Come On, Son, the podcast is produced and engineered by co-executive producers Krista Hayes and Kimana Paulus in downtown Chicago. This is an official Loudspeakers Network podcast. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.